Hi, and from the Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer. And here at What's In It For Us, we are excited to celebrate LGBTQ plus Pride Month. The entire month of June, we will be featuring brilliant guest co-hosts from the LGBTQ plus community. And today we have a very, very special guest co-host. Hi, my name is Richard Brookshire. I'm the co-founder of the Black Veterans Project, and you're listening to What's In It For Us. Okay, so before we get started, our hot topic today is the NFL and their pledge to stop race norming. Richard, do you have a favorite football team? Do you watch football? Uh, I'm, I know, no. <laughs> I okay. am a LGBTQ. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I used to watch football, obviously, with everything that was going down with Colin Kaepernick. I've been cool on the NFL, but, you know, I was an Eagles fan. I'm a bit of a Giants fan. We've got some family who are Saints fans, so I do pay attention. I watched the draft this year. I like it intellectually as a game. However, last Wednesday, the NFL pledged to stop using this race norming. And so for those of you who don't know what race norming is, it's this binary sort of whites and non-whites where they were using it in testing, which assumed that black patients start with worse cognitive function than whites and other non-blacks. And so the practice made it harder for black retirees to show a deficit and actually qualify for benefits and awards. And so this standard was created in the 1900s in hopes of offering a more appropriate treatment to dementia patients. But the critics said that it was used to determine actual payouts in NFL concussion cases. And with more than 2000 NFL retirees who have filed dementia claims, fewer than those, uh, fewer than 600 have actually received awards. And according to the most recent report, more than half of all NFL retirees are black. And so now we've got lawyers and litigation, but I think it's fascinating, Richard, that we have these racial implications of even when people, black people, have left the NFL, they're still experiencing race and racism from the institution and the organization that has shown itself time and time again to really not understand how to treat black players while they're in the league and even when they retire from the league. I mean, it reminds me of that, um, that historical norm, I guess, that uh, a lot of physicians assume that black folk felt pain less, right? So it's just kind of far the course. It's it's kind of embedded into medicine in so many different ways. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. I did not know they had a standard upon which they, they, they judged and adjudicated um, benefit claims, but it also reminds me of the military in, in many ways. I mean, so many black folk experience all level of, uh, of, uh, of disability and aren't, you know, given their just dues by way of disability claims. And we are actually doing a lot of work around that in the Black Veterans Project. And recently there was actually uh, a case that was settled for a few billion dollars actually for uh, those who had gotten out of the military who had TDI amongst some other issues and had other and what's than TDI? Discharge. Uh, traumatic brain injury. So it's the same okay. type of, of injury that those um, in the NFL face, right? Um, and they weren't getting their benefits because they got other than honorable discharges, which there are a lot of racial implications as to why black folk have higher rates of dishonorable discharge. So, I mean, it, it's kind of shows up in multiple areas of Amer American society. And it's uh, I think it's getting it's getting traction because it, it's the NFL. Right. And, uh, you know, people love these these games and they, they hold these players on a pedestal, um, even if they are black to some degree. So um, the visibility around it is, is really important. Um, but there's there's still so much and hopefully it's just the beginning step of, of starting to address this in other institutions as well. 
I think it's so important that you made that link between those two institutions because the institution of the NFL and the institution of the US military service um, and how those two are oftentimes conflated. So even when we think about Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee and it's like, you're disrespecting the troops. And so this, um, this militarization of the NFL and how black people are treated in both of those institutions and once they leave both of those institutions, I think is a fa fascinating parallel uh, that we need to continue to think about. So as always, you all are listening to What's In It For Us and we will continue to think about how this affects black folks and how we move forward. Okay, so Richard, I, I wanted to have you on today because this Pentagon ban on flying the pride flag has me feeling some kind of way. And so the Pentagon has said that they aren't going to grant an exception to fly the LGBT flags on US military installations during pride month, which is the month of June, keeping in place a Trump administration policy to limit the type of flags displayed on base. So uh, John Kirby, who's a press secretary, told reporters, quote, after some careful consideration, the department will maintain the existing policy from July of 2020 regarding the display or depiction of unofficial flags. And so they consider, end quote, they consider the pride flag an unofficial flag. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper last year implemented a broad flag policy that was intended to target the Confederate flag, since we know that folks still love to fly that flag. But the directive, which has banned the Confederate flag and other hate symbols, which I include the Confederate flag as one, um, the directive which bans the Confederate flag and other hate symbols from being displayed at our military bases, it also, though, under that umbrella, prohibits other flags, including those of sports teams and also including the pride flag. So do you feel some kind of way about military bases not flying the pride flag? Or are you just like, eh, it's a tempest in a teapot? I'm kind of indifferent to it in some respect, right? Like, I I mean, the fact that they're not flying it, um, you know, on a military base doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, so perhaps I'm kind of like jaded in some in some respect. Um, but I, I, to me, it's like the, our big fight is getting uh, Confederate monuments uh, actually taken down from military bases, which there are hundreds, literally hundreds. So the fact that they're not flying the Confederate flag, but you have you have buildings, you have monuments, um, you know, scattered. You have bases, uh, quite literally, some of the most uh, the biggest bases, at least in the army. Um, some ships even are named after Confederate generals, uh, Confederate troops. So I think that is is much more the fight that I'm interested in. Um, I do think that you know this idea uh, of flying a flag can sometimes uh, make people believe that um, inclusivity is actually happening. Um, and you know, the, the, the overturning of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is still relatively new in the history of the military. There's still so many hate crimes, I think, that are being perpetrated um, against uh, LGBTQ members. And so to me, the, the flag itself is somewhat performative. Even yesterday, I saw a post by the Air Force and it was uh, in honor of, of, of uh, LGBT History Month. And they had you know, a soldier kind of giving the salute and her hand was a, a rainbow. And I just looked at it as propaganda, really. I mean, it's just, for me, it's about how do we, you know, attract more people, more, more working class Americans to exploit in this, you know, form of indentured servitude to kind of prop up an empire and kind of gain more foot soldiers for it under the guise of inclusivity while maintaining a structure that is inherently exploitative and maintaining a structure within the military that lacks accountability um, to keep those workers safe. That's such a fascinating um, connection that you make about sort of this performative identity that we're seeing 
uh, I guess the military is like, hey, we're just not doing it. We're not even performing in certain aspects, but we see corporations doing it time and time again. And that is just so frustrating. So, you know, having just celebrated, celebrated, recognized Memorial Day, so many people across the country, I really wanted to have you on for this particular episode because I wanted, I, I love the way your brain thinks. Now, yes, I may be a little biased because I was your professor a few times. So You shaped it, I, you shaped it. I, I feel like I, you know, I, I did a little, a teeny bit of molding, but you clearly came with, with some really fully formed opinions when we first met. And I love what you built with the Black Veterans Project. And so coming off of Memorial Day, I really wanted to get your analysis of, you know, the story that we heard about uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bernard Kempter's microphone being cut off during a Memorial Day event in Hudson, Ohio, shortly after he began discussing the role that Black people played in the holiday's origins. Uh, and, you know, he was a keynote speaker for the event. He was discussing the history of the holiday. He included the discovery of newspaper clippings and handwritten notes uh, that showed a group of freed Black people, uh, showed them being among the first to commemorate, commemorate the holiday following the surrender of the Confederacy. Uh, and uh, his microphone was cut, cut off because they said that his keynote, uh, that was not relevant uh, to what the keynote was about. Um, and that audio wasn't part of the program of the day. And the theme of the day was to honor Hudson veterans. And so to talk about uh, the ceremony from the past and a parade that included as many as 10,000 people, including 3,000 African-American school children, the organizers just didn't feel that that was relevant at all. So when you read that story, uh, what did you think about as a veteran, as a Black veteran, as someone who started the Black Veterans Project to recognize Black veterans in all all aspects of our armed services? I wasn't surprised. I mean, I think a couple of people tagged me in it. I think they assumed that we would post about it. I did not. Um, we actually did an article for Afropunk a few years ago that retold that story in a very provocative way. Um, so it's something that we are deeply familiar with. Um, I commend the Colonel for actually, you know, taking time to recognize Black history amidst all of that. Um, but again, part of the course, the erasure of the Black contributions to the American experience is just something to be expected. And when we think about even Memorial Day, we had run a fundraising campaign. And on our Facebook page, I don't know, the algorithm just attracted a bunch of Trumpers. And we had literally had dozens of comments um, from, from white Trumpers who are essentially disparaging us, saying that we're, we're being divisive. We're, being, we're the ones being racist because we want to recognize the contributions of African-Americans who literally founded the holiday. Right, so um, not not surprising in the least. I mean, the erasure of the black experience, specifically the erasure of, of black veterans, um, I think is is something that you know birthed our project. Um, even even the ways in which black uh, vets are, are are honored, there's less than 90 out of over 3,500 Medal of Honor recipients. Only 90 are black, right? So there's just like just tradition. And black people have been in every single war since the founding of this nation. Am I correct? Uh, every single war absolutely and their and their contributions are often erased and so part of the impetus of our project is like correcting the history right like we know that the daughters of the confederacy after the civil war had a you know almost a hundred year effort to shape the public imagination about what the civil war was about and to prop up a particular kind of american history and we really look at our work as undoing that right um kind of in in, in a very unapologetic way um, so again, you know, kudos to him for having the courage to actually just speak the truth. And it shouldn't have been that provocative, right? It was just an introductory story in honor of just educating, you know, the 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 audience, some of whom were probably black, right? Um, and, and telling the truth about about the founding of the holiday. 
um, which is, which most, Amer most Americans don't know about. It seems like the undercurrent of what you keep saying is none of this is surprising. The institution of the U.S. military <laughs> has been and continues to be what it is. And so this last story, I thought about you because you've talked a lot about mental health. You've talked a lot about what the military has given you. You know, we met because of the GI Bill, but you also talk about sort of the failings of the military um, when they don't protect and support people who have left this institution, who have seen and done things that have been quite catastrophic for their lives. And so Isaac Wright left the army a few months um, on a medical retirement after six years in uniform, but as a civilian, he left and he was disillusioned and directionless, as he said. He struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder, thoughts of suicide. Uh, and he's he's a former paratrooper who became this quote unquote urban explorer, where he scales the tops of buildings and bridges and he takes these beautiful pictures. And he says it helps him ease his PTSD. But now he's facing criminal charges in several states uh, for the climbing that he's done. Uh, he is a professional photographer. Uh, he says it helps him have a new perspective on life. Uh, even though it's a dangerous endeavor, he finds it transformative. I think it should be noted and it should not be surprising that the manhunts that have occurred looking for him in several states uh, where we've had helicopters and dogs and tasers and assault rifles and full communities hunting him down, uh, we also know that uh, this former uh, army veteran is African-American. And has had family members killed by police. And so we also see how his body is being policed as he's just trying to process what happened to him uh, while he was in the military. And the government views him as a threat because of the training he received. So not, not the Timothy McVeighs of the world and other white boys who have gone to bases and other places and nightclubs and schools and shot up. Uh, individuals, but him who is literally just climbing bridges and taking photographs and trying to process his PTSD. And I really wanted to get your analysis of this story. Many layers here. This is something that white boys engage in all the time. Urban climbing is not a new phenomena. Um, oftentimes they're charged with very low level misdemeanors and kind of left to their own devices. And now you see an African-American participating in the same kind of activity and they're literally throwing the book at him. He's facing 25 years in prison um, with all the charges that he's been um, kind of brought, brought against him. Um, I think one of the things that actually came to mind is there, there a lot of civilians don't know about is there's something called veterans courts, right? So there are specific court systems that have been set up to assist vets who may have gotten involved with the law in some way, um, who, who, who struggle with mental health challenges. Um, but Black folk are largely locked out of these veteran courts. And I have a, a few stories to tell about that, but I won't I won't get into it now. They exist in Ohio. So the fact that he, who has been discharged for um, you know, PTSD, the, the military has said that he has it, which often takes a long time for Black folk to actually get that disability claim. Um, and he wasn't pointed toward a veteran court to me is, is not surprising, but at the same time, it's kind of like, what, what, you know, what the F is going on in Ohio, right? And really quickly, Richard, what's the criteria to get appointed to a veteran court? It, well, it's literally just a referral. It's a referral and then oftentimes it's you've gotten involved in the, the criminal justice system in some way and you have usually um, some type of disability claim or some kind of mental health issue at play. Um, but it can be broad. Like every every state has has you know small differences in how they adjudicate these veteran courts. But it's, it's seen as a way to not only honor the service 
of, of members of the military. I mean, these courts should exist writ large, right? You should take in the full humanity of people before you decide to throw the book at them and throw them in cages. Um, so I, the fact that they only exist for veterans, I think is, is kind of BS as well. Um, but yeah, so they exist. They're kind of these new phenomena to kind of curb um, what, what, was seen, what we were seeing as far as an increase in the veteran uh, presence within prisons, right? Um, because they're dealing with so many mental issues. They often end up homeless, um, that disillusionment. Um, they get into you know, the, you know, the black market in some ways, or they, they, they get into kind of petty crime um, for survival or what have you. Um, and so these veteran courts were kind of supposed to be an intervention. Um, but like I said, black folk are largely locked out of that. Um, and this is just but one example. You know, I think what what really disturbed me about this story is how he's being painted as such a danger and a threat to society. And so we know that, as you said, urban explorers are, you know, white boys who, who were in Instagram and, you know, Facebook and Twitter. And it's, it's just this fascinating, cool thing to do. Um, and oftentimes when they're caught trespassing, they're typically charged with a misdemeanor if they're charged at all. And so the fact that that veteran right is being charged with burglary for entering a building illegally and taking photographs and several other felonies that they're tacking on. And that could put him in prison for more than 25 years. He could be facing life in prison for climbing a building. And we saw that the judge set bail at $400,000 for one of his offenses, which is far more than what Mr. Wright could afford. And his lawyer, was able to get his bond reduced to $10,000 and he was released to sort of wait in Ohio for his trial. But then when he was pulled over by Kentucky State Police, right, who had been tipped off, um, it's it sort of, they they had the tasers drawn, they saw him as a threat. And so we're now seeing this kind of larger web also of the institution of policing and courts and making sure that he will be punished uh, however they see fit in ways that we know for a fact that white urban climbers just will never be prosecuted the way or punished or penalized. There's a story about this gentleman named Sean Worsley, who I'm actually writing about um, for a book, um, who had been pulled over for a slight marijuana offense um, and been basically facing five years in an Alabama jail, even though he was 100% disabled and had a medical marijuana card from a different state. So um, he was, you know, the advocacy and the visibility of his story was able to get him released, but he's still on probation. He's not able to leave the state of Alabama. I spoke to him and his wife about a month ago, and they're still facing so many of the repercussions, economic and otherwise, of something that could have been easily kind of dealt with in a completely different way, right? And because they were a black person, Specifically, because I think because they were a black veteran, which we all we all know has been a threat to the status quo, going far, far back to Isaac Woodard, to the Civil War. Um, black men in uniform are also seen very much as a threat, right, uh, to the status quo. So, not surprising here. Well, I mean, it, you know, when you were saying that, it made me think about all the black soldiers who were lynched in their uniform. And since we no longer have lynching in the 1920s, 1930s sense of uh, that process. We have a different 21st century form of doing that for our Black black vets. Um, and I really appreciate you sort of sharing and contextualizing that story. And obviously on what's in it for us, we care about all things Black people, veterans and otherwise. So I really, truly appreciate you coming on today, Richard Brookshire. Tell us what is next for you. You sort of mentioned the book, you mentioned Black Veterans Project. So what should we be looking out for? 
one of our main partnerships is with Yale Law School. And so we actually delivered the largest race-based uh, data query that the Department of Veteran Affairs has ever received. So we're working alongside that and we're really hoping that over the next uh, few years, we're able to lay the foundation for the first ever successful class action litigation against the Department of Veteran Affairs, which is you know literally one of the biggest federal agencies in the country um, and the economic implications of benefit obstruction. So not, you know, not being able to have access to housing, healthcare, um, education benefits has generational impact. Um, and so we're really looking at how we lay a foundation to, to hold the department accountable there. Um, and on the other side, there's actually a bill that's gonna be introduced by Congressman Moulton and Congressman Clyburn on the 22nd. So you'll see me in the, in the press talking a lot about this in the next few months. It is essentially a reparations package. It's actually would be if passed the most substantive race-based reparations pa uh, package that African-Americans have received, received since Reconstruction at the conservative estimate is about $30 billion. Um, and so it would, uh, it would extend GI Bill benefits that Black uh, World War II veterans were largely locked out of. And I always want to contextualize what this means. Um, when the GI Bill was passed in 1945, um, it predicated the outgrowth of the American middle class because it extended um, housing benefits and education benefits to a large swath of, uh, of veterans who had served many, about 40% of, of men between the ages of 18 and, and 30 something had served in some capacity. So then they had access to zero VA back home loans to be able to purchase homes. We know that that has been a, a foundational for, gener for, for the building of generational wealth. So the extending of these benefits to the descendants of World War II veterans has wide reaching implications. Um, you'd have access to education benefits, of which I've used almost half a million dollars to get an education in this country, which it shouldn't cost that much, but here we are. Um, and and uh, you get access to be able to, to actually own a home. And we know that for Black Americans specifically, the barrier to entry for owning a home is usually the down payment. And so you'd have a zero VA back home loan. You wouldn't have to put a down payment. You would just have to qualify to buy that home. So again, very, very important legislation. And that's just one of a few things that we're really paying attention to and being proactive around. Richard Brookshire, I can't thank you enough for coming on What's In It For Us. You are my first former student who's a co-host with me. And I'm so incredibly proud of what you are doing and have done, but also what you continue to do for Black people in this country and abroad. So good luck with everything. And we'll hopefully see you, you back on the podcast soon. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Blue Toulousma and co-produced by Abdul Kudus, Antonio Thompson, and Taji Senior. Mm -hmm.